And for the rest of us, will you turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. I was thinking about, um, have any of you read the book, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person? Some of you have. Some of you have not been very effective, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, the writer of that book, his name was Stephen Covey. I believe he passed away last year. Um, I, I don't know if he was a believer or not. Um, but he wrote out just very practical. I mean, it wasn't anything rocket science. He talked about uh, seven habits that we need to have in our lives if we are going to uh, to live effective lives. And and the first one is be proactive. But the second one is the one I want you to focus on. And I think it's the element of what we're going to talk about this morning. It's to begin with the end in mind. To begin with the end in mind. Uh, he asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? So as I look at the young people out here, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, you know, most of it probably starts when we're like in junior high. You start to think about uh, what you're going to do and what you want to become. And then definitely when you get to high school, you start to really start to frame this out. After I graduate from high school, am I, am I planning to go to college or am I going to go into the career or am I going into the military? There's, uh, you start to figure out a plan of where you're going to go. Um, for those of us in our 20s and 30s, we start to think about uh, maybe getting married and having a family and having children. And, and those that have families and have mortgages and homes, you start to think about paying off your mortgage. You start to think about those ends, those, those statements down the road. What I want you to consider is this, and Covey asked this point. What would be life be like at your deathbed? What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? It's a, it's a piercing question because none of us likes to think about death. I mean, all of us wants to live long life. Longevity has its purpose and its plan. But, but the reality is, is that we don't know if we have more than just this day. We don't know if we have more than just this moment. We don't know if we have more than just this time. And so I want you to think about what would you like to have people say at your deathbed? Who do you want there? What would you like them to say? What are the last words that you would like to say to your loved ones, to your family, to your friends? What are the things that you want them to hold on to? You know, over the years, I, I, I've counseled tons of people. And I can tell you, that some of the greatest regrets are from people that are, are elderly and they look back at their life and they say that I've wasted my life um, or my family's not around and I've been separated from them or I really wish I had an opportunity to tell that loved one but I didn't have that opportunity. What is it that you would want them to say to you? What is it that you want them to what is it that you want them to remember about you? You know, all of us, and today may be my last day. It may be the last time I take a breath today. And what is it that I want people to remember about me? I, I hope people remember that he constantly talked about grace and gospel. 
that I, maybe they'll remember that phrase I keep saying, he's infinitely loved, totally accepted, completely forgiven. Maybe they'll remember, I can't, he can, he has, he does, he will, I can only in him. I hope that as my, when I die, if I have the opportunity to have my loved ones around me, I hope that they'd be around me and that I could pass on gospel grace to them. Because I will take my last breath sometime, unless Christ comes back, and all of us will. What is it that you want to leave behind? How many people over the years have come to the end of their lives with great regret, broken relationships, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, that loneliness? My mom used to work in a, in a convalescent home, a, a home for elderly, and I, it broke my heart when I would go and see her. She lived at this home with them. How many times we would go there to see my mom on a holiday and there were no family members with those elderly people. And some of them were dying alone. I want you to keep that in mind because I hope that we can see a place where that all who come behind us are going to find us what? Faithful faithful. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray this morning as we have this opportunity to um, look through Jacob's life. To be honest, what a mess of a life he had. Um, Father, he wasn't saved because of his amazing works. He was saved because of your amazing grace. That Father, he on his father's deathbed lied to his father, swindled his brother, and now at Jacob's deathbed, he's got his family around. He's a changed man. And he talks about your grace and your glory and your providential work in his life. I pray that all of us today can begin with the end in mind. Help us to see where you are potentially taking us and help us to live every day by your grace, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 48. In Genesis chapter 47, we find out that Jacob is now 147 years old. He's, he's lived a long life. Um, he met Pharaoh. We see that in cha uh, cha uh, chapter 47 as well. He was about 130 years old when he saw Joseph again. You remember, he had that opportunity. It's like he lost his son Joseph, his, his favorite. And, and now he has seen his son again, and his son is now the prime minister in Egypt. And, and God, you have allowed me to see him again. He's 130 years old. He told, he told actually, look back with me in this because this is important. Uh, Genesis 47, verse 7. Then Joseph broke Jacob, his father, and stood before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, which was interesting. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of your years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, verse 9, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and evil have been the days of my years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Kind of sounds kind of miserable, right? It's, he's basically saying all of the pain and all the trials and all the turmoil and all the tribulations that I had, you look back at my 130 years, a lot of pain. What's happened now in 17 years in Jacob's life? Because now he's 147 when we come to the beginning of chapter 48. 
And what do we see in the beginning of chapter 48? It says this, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Now, this was not just that he had a common cold. This was the sense that your father is dying. And Jacob is preparing to die. And he reaches out to his son, and he's going to reach out to his other sons, and he's going to bring them alongside him. Well, when Joseph heard this, what do we see in verse 1? So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Ever been around somebody who's at the near the end of their lives and it's like you find them um, sometimes struggling, um, struggling mentally or, or struggling physically. And then all of a sudden, maybe a family member comes into the room and you can see them like almost summon themselves, right? They kind of lift themselves out of the bed because there is something that, you know, oh, my family is here and you can see it. There's, there's life that is given back into their bodies in some way or another. And that's, and that's in essence what happened here uh, with um, Jacob, well, Joseph brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, there's this, this picture um, that was drawn. I can't remember who it was, who painted this picture of this scene. And it almost shows two little boys sitting on um, Jacob's knees. Um, and that scene, it looks very nice, but it probably in all reality is not the reality because these boys are probably men. They're probably 17 to 20 years old at this time. And, and Joseph is bringing his sons to his father so that he can bless them. Let's continue. Verse 3. And then uh, verse 2. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, his favorite here, he says, God Almighty. He basically said El Shaddai in the Hebrew. Um, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of people and I will give the land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. You know, when you get to the end of your life, you start to think back over your life. And, and it's interesting that 17 years earlier, when, jo when Pharaoh asked him about his life, he talked about all the pain and all the sorrow. But now, as he's coming to the end of his life, he is actually thinking about, oh, God, is, God Almighty, El Shaddai has blessed me. He, he, he's, he gets overwhelmed with it. Jacob gives a testimony to God's faithfulness in his life. Can you do that? Can you get to a place in your life where you could look back and say, I can see how God has been so faithful to me. Maybe Jacob was able to look at his faithlessness. As you know, Jacob's life was a mess. Jacob um, lied to his father, his father on his deathbed. He lied to his father to get an inheritance from his brother. He stole his brother's, his brother's birthright. He used his mom. His mom used him, and it was just so messed up. And then... He worked for years for a relationship with a wife, and then he was lied to. Actually, Jacob's name means surplanter or deceiver. And so it's interesting that as you look at Jacob's life, Jacob's life was going down this path, but now as he's looking back, he sees all of the faithlessness, and he focuses on the faithfulness of God. Let's continue. He says, he does something kind of interesting. Extremely interesting. He adopts Joseph's boys. He says in verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. 
Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. I was thinking about uh, grandparents. I could look back with sets of grandparents that, um, that loved God and be able to hear of a godly lineage. Uh, my kids can get an opportunity to be able to hear of a godly lineage that have come from our family. And when you have that opportunity, as you get to the end of your life, will you be able to pass on that godly heritage to your children? What, what, Joseph, what Jacob was able to do was he was able to talk about the faithful God and the gracious God. And I, I wonder, can you do that? I'm a journaler. Um, I know a lot of people are not, but I love keeping a journal. I love in that journal being able to write down a request, prayer requests for you, and then answers that I've seen happen in your life. I, I love being able to write down things that I've been, where God has worked in my life in ways that I could never have imagined. I've got tons of these journals, and I, I guess when I pass away, my kids will either throw them out, <laughs> or maybe they'll read them. I don't know if they'll read them, but what I hope is this, that when I get to the end of my life, that my kids are not going to necessarily have to read the journal because I have been sharing over and over the stories of God's faithfulness. So this is not new to Ephraim and Manasseh. They've probably been hearing this for the last 17 years from this grandfather. They've been hearing of gospel graces. They've been hearing of changes that are happening. But what Jacob does right now is he basically adopts Joseph's children. He says, Ephraim and Manasseh are mine. We'll see as we get to chapter 49 in a little bit that Reuben and Simeon were going to be displaced because of their sin. And Ephraim and Manasseh were going to take over. And what I find is this, that Remember when we talked all this time about the fact that Joseph was going to be given this blessing, that he was given a blessing of privilege? Well, he was given a double blessing now because in essence, for your one possession, Joseph, I am actually going to give you two. I'm going to give you a double blessing. Ephraim and Manasseh are going to get a blessing that is here. Verse 7. As for me, I came from Paddan, and the sorrow of Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was some distance between to go before Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. I don't know why Jacob decided to adopt these two kids, but I wonder if it could be in, in the memory of his, of his loved wife, Rachel. He loved Rachel. He had a number of wives, but he had one wife that he loved above them all, and it was Rachel. And Jacob loved Rachel. If you remember, Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin, his lastborn. And so this, this child who he loved, Joseph and Benjamin, were the byproduct of Rachel, and he is now blessing Joseph through Rachel's life. So I think he's doing that. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, some commentators say that because he's gotten so old, he can't see and he's become blind. I, I think that could be true. We'll see that in a moment. In verse 10, it says, now the eyes of Israel had grown dim with age so that he could not see. But I also wonder if it's this. 
At an adoption hearing, if any of you have ever gone through an adoption hearing, what they do is they, they call the parents here and they call the child. And they, they name the child. They say, and this child is like he were born or she were born into your family. And I wonder if in some ways this is like a beginning of an adoption ceremony. That who are these children? This is Ephraim and this is Manasseh. These are the children. And I am Joseph. And I am now going to adopt your children into my family. Let's keep going. Joseph said to his fathers, these are my son, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel are dim in age, so you cannot see them. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them, and he braced them. It's easy to read over that passage. I love it when my son runs up to me and gives me a hug. I just love it. I walk in the door and Isaiah is running to me and he gives me a hug. Daddy's home. Men today, we're not very physically affectionate and we're not very emotionally affectionate. And I want you to see that, that, that Jacob, Jacob, when he got to the end of his life, he he poured verbal blessings upon his children and his grandchildren and he wrapped his arms around them and he kissed them. And what our society tells us today about what a real man is, that he doesn't do that, I, I dare you. Break down that wall, break down that stereotype, wrap your arms around your children, tell them that you love them. Even when they are teenagers, it's like, Dad, I don't want to hear it anymore. Tell them again and again and again. Because I think I'd be just a, I, I wonder what Ephraim and Amasa would remember years later. That on the day that my grandpa died, he hugged me and he held me and he poured verbal blessings upon me. Oh, okay, you gotta get stopped. <clears throat> Verse 11. <clears throat> and Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has set me, let me see your offspring also. You, you know, Joseph, uh, J uh, Jacob had lost Joseph. He thought he was dead. And now he's been brought back from the dead. And now not only do I get to see my beloved son, but I get to see his offspring. Oh, this is so incredible. Then Joseph removed them from his knees. Now these are 20-year-old boys. They're probably not at his knees. They're probably bent down and he's, but whatever at his knees and bowed his face before him face to the earth. That's another line that jumped out at me. Don't pass over this one. This is the second most powerful man in the world. The second most powerful man in the world, the prime minister of the nation of Egypt. He is standing before his father and he says, no, he gets down on his face before his father. He shows him reverence. He shows him respect. He shows him honor. What's the passage in, um, the, um, out, of the New I mean, uh, out of the Old Testament? It says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. And I find it interesting that the very thing that Jacob did not do with his father is the very thing that Joseph is doing to his father. What Jacob did to his father as he's blind and at his deathbed, he's lying to him. He's betraying him. He's stealing from him. And what Joseph does is he does the exact opposite. 
that at your, the end of your life, Dad, I am bowing down. I am Prince of Egypt. But you know what? I am nothing before you. You are my dad. You are my leader. You're my honored one. Verse 13. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim in his right hand. The right, I'm sorry, <clears throat> and Ephraim in his right hand towards jo- Israel's left. And Manasseh on his right with his left hand. And he brought them near. So right-handed would be a blessing. It would be the blessing of preeminence. Both children were going to be blessed, but one, the older, was going to get the ultimate privilege here. He's going to get a double blessing. So, so the way Joseph lined it up, he says, I'm going to put the older over here on this side, the right, so that on the left, so that my dad with his right hand will be able to place that on him, and the younger son will be over here on the right, or my dad's left hand, and he'll be able to give him the second blessing. And then Israel does something kind of weird. And Israel stretched out his hands. Israel, I should tell you, Israel is another name for Jacob. Israel, or Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim. And then he took his left hand and he laid it on the hand of Manasseh, on the head of Manasseh. He crossed his hands. And then he pronounced his blessing. The God whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. You remember where we get that Psalm, Psalm 23? The Lord is what? My shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. You know, that came from here, here. Um, But let's keep going. The shepherd, all my life long to that day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys and let my name be carried on in the name of my father and Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, I don't know, but I think what's probably happening is this, that Joseph has got his face down in the ground before his father. He hears this blessing and then he looks up and he says, oh no, the hands are crossed. Well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you've given the blessing to the younger. That's not the way it's supposed to be, no dad. And you can see in verse 17, Joseph saw his father's laid his hand on the right hand on the head of Ephraim and it displeased Joseph. It was the very first time that we actually could see something in Joseph's life where you know, we actually see aspects of displeasure. He, he was displeased by that. He was concerned about this. He said, wait a minute, God, um, um, uh, dad, you, you've got this wrong. And he took his father's hand. He actually took his father's hand and tried to move his father's hand from Manasseh's head. And Joseph said, not this way, my father, since the one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. And he says, I know my son, I know He also shall be a great people. He shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall be multiplied to the nations. So he blessed them, saying that day, by Israel will pronounce blessing, and God will make Ephraim as you Ephraim and Manasseh. 
So the hands, for the fourth consecutive generation, if you're familiar with Genesis at all, for the fourth consecutive generation, we have got the younger serving the older. I'm sorry, the older serving the younger. We have Isaac over Ishmael. We have Jacob over Esau. We have Joseph over Reuben. And now we have Ephraim over Manasseh. Why? Are you the youngest child here in your family? Do you ever feel like kind of left out sometimes? <laughs> you ever feel like you're not as great? Um, but think about how many younger children there were. Isaac was a younger child. Joseph, younger child. How about Moses? Moses was a younger child. Gideon, King David. What God does is this. He says, I, I'm not a respecter of persons. I don't play favoritism. I don't go down what modern convention would be. I can upset your apple cart every once in a while because I am the one who's sovereign. I'm providential. I have a plan. So he finishes this section by talking about this. He says, um, verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of the fathers. What is he doing? Jacob is passing on this godly heritage. He's saying, look to the future. We're living in this land of Egypt, but this is not our home. Our home is across there. Now what, what I want you to do, moreover, I've given you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. If you, if you have a Bible and you look in the back of your Bible, what you will find is, um, and you look at the land, um, actually the map that I have right in the back of my Bible, it says the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, what you'll find is that there is no tribe there for who? Joseph. Now, Joseph is the favorite child here. Why is there no tribe for the tribe of Joseph? Why is there no land? Because there is a land for Manasseh and a land for Ephraim. And what God was doing and Jacob did for his son Joseph is this. I'm going to give you a double blessing. And I'm going to actually give your sons. You're not going to just get one blessing. I'm going to give you a double blessing. I'm going to give you the privilege of Reuben. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. So now he's had this private time with Joseph and his sons. And now he moves into chapter 49 where he brings all his sons. Verse 49. Chapter 49, it says this, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. I won't take time to go through each one of these. What I want to try to do is just to focus on um, five people. Five people really quick. Reuben. Verse 3. You're my firstborn. My might and the fruit of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. What a blessing. Can you imagine when you get to the end of you, when you get your dad at the end of his life and he's saying, man, you, you were my firstborn and I am just so amazed by this. I was, you know, that first day that I saw you, it was just, wow, I got a boy, I got a son, I've got a child. I mean, this one. But then he hits him right between the eyes. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. 
because you went up to your father's bed, that's in chapter 35 if you want to read it, and you defiled it. He went up on my couch. It's almost as if Jacob, at the very end of his life, is saying that there are choices and consequences to your life, that the choices that you make have consequences. And he's going to say to his boys that some of the choices that you made have consequences in your life today, but it will also potentially affect your future, potentially affect your generations to come after that. What what Jacob is asking us to do is to be a living example of faith. He's asking us to live in a way that we multiply grace in our lives, but most of us don't do that. Most of us think about this moment in time. We don't think about future generations. We don't think about the legacy that we leave behind. And Reuben clearly didn't do that. He was living in his passions and his lust, and he went into his father's concubine and was reprehensible. And the privileges that he should have had as firstborn, they were gone. Unstable as water. I thought that was interesting, so I looked it up. Reckless. Wicked destructive. He was wild. He was weak. He allowed his passions and his lusts to fuel him. And he lost out on the blessing. Verse 8, I mean 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their sword. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for their their anger is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. His next two. See, if Reuben doesn't get the preeminence, it would fall to the next oldest one. That's the way it normally would go. So it should have been Simeon. But Simeon and Levi, which you will find earlier chapters of Genesis, they committed an evil atrocity out of anger, retribution, revenge. They took their anger upon themselves and they killed a number of people. And they lost out on their blessing. So the thing I want the men to think about in this room is this. In 25 years of counseling, that I've been counseling men and people. What I found with the men that have counseled is that inevitably there are usually two areas that they struggle with. Lust and anger. And as we look at Reuben's life, he allowed lust to take over his life. His uncontrolled passions lost him his birthright. And Simeon and Levi, Simeon and... I just got it. Simeon and Levi lost their privilege because of their anger. And so men, here I ask you today, how many of us struggle day after day with these areas in our lives and, and we think that there are no consequences to it? We do it in private or we, we don't worry about what other people think and I'm telling you, it is like a cancer that will take over. And you need to be free. So Reuben, you've lost the blessing. Simeon and Levi, you lost the blessing. I want you to consider two people. Judah. Now Judah, 
if you remember, I had an opportunity to preach on Judah several weeks ago. Judah was a mess. You remember him? Judah was the one who separated himself from his family and his faith. Judah was the one that got secular friends. You remember that guy? You remember Judah had become so sexualized, he saw his wife. We didn't even get his, her, his wife's name. All we got was this woman that he had had sex with and had a number of children with. And you remember Judah, after his wife died, what did he do? He, he hired what he thought was a prostitute. He became so secular. He became so sexualized. He, he became so selfish. He, he took the opportunity for his daughter-in-law to be part of that family. He removed it. And you remember after he thought he had been with a prostitute and he found out it was his daughter-in-law, and his daughter-in-law has now um, been at birth, uh, is, has a child. You remember before he knows that it was his daughter-in-law and that he was the father, you remember what he was going to do? He was going to kill her. Have her be burned. The anger of Judah. He had thrown anger towards his brother. He had thrown anger towards his daughter-in-law. And now what do we have? Judah. The scepter shall not depart, verse 10, from Judah. Nor the ruler staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him be the obedience of the people. You remember what happened with Judah? You remember when he was confronted with those possessions that were his and it's by this man I am pregnant? And you remember what he said? She is more righteous than me. He, he had come to the end of himself and he had recognized his sin and he had turned and, and the fruit of that repentance was found over the weeks that we've been here. You remember what happened when Benjamin was in prison and Joseph was trying to see if these brothers had really changed. And he says, I want this brother brought back. And Judah says, I can't. My dad can't. And then, then eventually they brought Benjamin back. You remember the, the ploy that Joseph had created to see if they would go against the favored son again. And what happened? Judah says, I'll go to prison for him. Take me instead. A radical change had happened in Judah's life. And what God had promised was this. The line of the Messiah was not going to go through Joseph. It wasn't going to go through Ephraim or Manasseh. It was going to go through Judah. And he says this. The binding of his foal, verse 11, to the vine. And donkey's cult to the choice vine. What Judah is pronouncing is that you, you have such, you're going to have such blessing that you're going to have wine vines that are all over the place. You can even use them to tie up your colts. You have vines that you have so much opportunity and possessions that I'm going to give to you. But not only that, he washed his garments in wine and the vestures of blood of grapes. Some think back to or look forward to Jesus. You remember what Jesus' first miracle was? He turned water into wine. And Jesus was called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah. So, so this man who was so despicable that God by his amazing grace had changed him and transformed him and now has given him a possession moving forward. Then he goes through the rest of his sons and then we get to his son Joseph. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him. Maybe he's looking back at what his brothers had done to him. His sons had done to his son. 
and yet his bow remained unmoved, and his arm were more agile, and his hands were the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of the fathers who will help you, the almighty God who will bless you, and blessings from heaven. He pours out these blessings upon these other um, sons, but now he pours out this special blessing upon Joseph. He says, Joseph, you are my son. You are the son that I, I desired. And, and he looks back at Joseph's blessings. It's interesting, as I saw the two, Judah, he's looking primarily forward to what God is going to do through Judah and his lineage. In Joseph's life, he's looking back. So there's a looking back at what God has done through jo- Joseph's life, but there's a forward looking of what God is going to do through Judah's life. And that's where we need to go at the end of our lives. And even now is look back at what God has done for you, but look forward to what God has promised to do in you and through you. That's exactly what he's doing here with Joseph. He's talking about God and he's speaking of God in multiple ways. He's speaking of God as the mighty one, the all powerful one. He speaks of God again as the shepherd. Remember, Lord is my shepherd. He speaks of him as the stone. He speaks of him as the God of the fathers. He speaks of him as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And he pours blessing upon him over and over and over again. He pronounces another blessing on Benjamin. Now he's prepared to die. I find it interesting if you flip with me to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith. In verse 13 and following, it says this. Hebrews 11, verse 13. So the writer of the Hebrews, looking back at this time, he says this. These all died in faith not having received the things promised. So he hadn't received it yet. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in this earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. See, this is not our home. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god and he has prepared for them a city and then he goes to the lineage by faith abraham when he was tested offered up isaac and he received the promise was an act of the offering up of his only son whom it is said through isaac shall your offspring be made and he considered that god was able to even raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back by faith isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And then here's Jacob, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So what was it that the writer of the Hebrews saw was the monumental moment in Jacob's life? His faith. His faith. So I guess I ask you in closing is this. When we get to the end of our lives, what are we going to be focusing on? The end of chapter 49 tells us that Jacob made his son's promise that they were going to take his bones back. 
to the land. It's an interesting section in there. He talks about the fact that you've taken back my, um, Abraham took back Sarah. He goes on to say, not only did Abraham take back Sarah, but he also says here that, um, I just lost it. Abraham took back Sarah, verse 31. And there Isaac buried Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. And then he stopped. Where's Rachel? I don't know if it was a, what we call senior moment. Maybe. Or maybe he was so, so overcome with emotions that my favorite wife, my desired wife, she's gone, I can't even say it. Then he goes right into the field in the cave that is in uh, where I brought it from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. He's breathed his last. Jacob was able to come to the end of his life because he trusted in a sovereign God. Jacob was able to come to the end of his life because he trusted in a God who was gracious. Jacob was able to come to his end of his life because he trusted in a God who was providential. That he could make these decrees to his son because he trusted that the God who gave him these promises would take care of them. He trusted in a God and he obeyed him. His God became the substance of his life. And he wanted to pour his absolute confidence upon his sons, upon God, on his sons. There was a song years ago, guy Steve Green, he wrote this song, and it went this way. We're pilgrims on a journey of a narrow road, and those who've gone before us line the way. Cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament of God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by a crowd of witnesses. I think he's looking at uh, Hebrews 12 if you read the next chapter. Let us run the race not only for a prize, but those who've gone before us. Let us leave to those behind us a heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. And here's the chorus. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Last side. And after all our hopes and dreams have come and gone, and all our children sift through all we've left behind, may the clues that they discover and the memories they uncover become the light that leads them to the road that we each must find. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. The people that come behind you what are they seeing? Your life may have been a mess like Jacob's. It was, right? But he looked to a redeemer. He looked to one who was going to change him. See, we, we look, we have much more evidence than Jacob did. We know the redeemer. And if you could look at some of the lives of these guys in Genesis and God could save them, 
He can save any one of you. Will you today trust him? Will you today be able to leave a legacy of faith for your children, much greater than legacy of possessions? Lord, I pray that you would... um, Help us to begin with the end in mind, Lord. Probably a non-Christian writer wrote those principles and he was absolutely right. We should be thinking about the end and not just the end of our lives here, but we should be thinking about the end of our lives here, which is the beginning of real life, eternity in heaven if we trust in your son. The sad reality is this, that the end of our lives here without Christ is the beginning of an eternity separated from you in hell. Father, I pray today that we would not be looking at the earthly things that we do, but we will look at the life of your son. Help us not to believe that we can earn favor in and of ourselves. We can't. Help us not to think that we deserve or you are obligated to give to us. You're not. Help us to be amazed by your grace. Help us to be overwhelmed by your kindness. Help us to see the sin that the Savior has covered. Help us to see the guilt that grace has overwhelmed and help us to live in gratitude for you. Help us to see I can't, but he can. He has. He does. He will. I can only in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.